0: Hi everybody and welcome back to another episode of Ship Talk. This is our first episode after Unscripted, and I'm very honored to be ha- talking to Santiago today. So, Santiago, for the listeners who don't know who you are, maybe tell us a little bit about yourself and where do you work.
1: First of all, yeah, thanks so much, Ravi, for having me here. Uh, my name is Santiago Campuzano. I am a lead deep engineer at GamGam. So Gamgam is a computer vision advertising ad tech company based on Santa Monica, California. Uh, well, we as a company, we've been around for almost 12 years. Um, I've been working at gamgam for almost three years. And yeah, it's really exciting. Uh, it's really exciting to be here um, to talk about my experiences with Kubernetes, with containers, you know, with all the infra and all the, uh, all the technology that led uh, uh, ultimately to Kubernetes and to the container explosion that we are living right now. So thanks again, Ravi, for having me here.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm quite excited to talk to Santiago. I, he actually produced a pretty excellent blog post, uh, which we'll link to. And he actually talked about some of his early experience. And I was like, aha, Santiago has seen <laughs> the entire evolution. Um, because a lot of times when we talk about Kubernetes, we're so focused on it. But uh, as uh, as especially with a person like Santiago with lots of experience, uh, it, you you kind of see that there's things that are different, things that are the same, right? So like the there wasn't much, or the evolution wasn't as ground shattering as it, as right. if you were just starting out, as it appears to be. So let's 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 go on a little journey. Let let's go through the 2000s. We'll we'll, we'll go back <laughs> the go back in time machine, uh, and so let's go up right before. Linux containers became popular, right? So like these are like the 2010s, but Santiago before the podcast is telling me he remembers the days of racking and stacking and running the networking wires. Right, (laughs) funny times, Let's not (laughs) go back that far, Uh, but we can say, you know what, let's talk about 2010. What was the technology landscape looking like uh, in your world?
1: Okay, yeah, back in the time I used to be, I mean, I used to be like a consultant for many companies back here in Colombia. Uh, Especially I was focused on middleware software, like, I mean, Java, middleware. So I remember working with like Oracle WebLogic, uh, IBM was replication server. So yeah, back in that time, like the heavy technology was obviously VMware and the virtual machines, you know, virtual machines came as a technology that was, that was going to consolidate, you know, infra that was going to save companies a lot of money that was going to speed up the provisioning of new servers and new applications. Because before that, you you just have to wait for you know the provisioning part of your company to acquire the servers, to install the servers. So yeah, back in the time, uh, so we had VMware. Um, the other hype that I remember back in those days was the uh, SOA, I mean like service-oriented architecture hype. So I remember actually being um, service-oriented architecture consultant. Uh, to be honest, for me, that was kind of a hype because, you know, the application integrations have existed for for many years. So it was just like a new architecture trying to solve a lot of problems that, you know, companies were facing when integrating services. Uh, but probably a lot of companies got the concept wrong and probably they were trying to force uh, the service-oriented architecture to, to the companies. So I think actually that was kind of the, kind of the beginning of microservices, uh, you know, because when you start working with service-oriented architecture, you have to think of your business and your applications, you know, as like as small functions and functions with, you know, with properly business uh, boundaries, you know, mm-hmm. like perfectly defined business boundaries. So I think that was like the earliest stages actually of, of, of microservices. Uh, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think from my, Point of view. I think that was like the uh preview of microservices.
0: Awesome. I even I think now I think we're related now because at the same time period, I was doing a lot of JE development in the 2010. So it's like I, it, you know, I I'm lucky that I know Santiago a little bit. So I, I we have very similar career paths actually. I started out in yeah, Java and J2E of, and then I, I did yeah. a lot of Meso stuff and then I did a lot of Kubernetes stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so, pretty, <laughs> yeah. similar. Pretty, yeah, sim- pretty
1: similar paths.
0: Pretty yeah. similar paths. So let, let's, let's start building up to the container lifestyle. So uh, having uh, a clustered application of more than one node is not something new, right? So this right. is something that we did a lot in Java. I, I did a lot of multi-node right. applications or distributed app- or distributable or distributed, distributed applications
1: application, yeah. uh,
0: in Java. And so like... Each instance, I remember using WebSphere ND, <laughs> so we
1: would have each,
0: you No, know, we would have, like, nine copies of, like,
1: the web Which, app. Which, by the way, and... it was super complex to, to install and configure. <laughs> I mean, you, you you needed a PhD, you know, to install and properly configure uh, WebSphere ND. I mean, if, if you wanted to do it right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
0: And so, like, a lot of those, so, like, th- there was a lot of concepts in an application server that mimics you know you used to call it the web container right, right. Yeah. uh instead of when we say container now we think of a Linux container like docker uh but there, there was a lot of like we were building distributed apps fairly complicated distributed apps uh back back in the day and i'm sure you were too uh but what but what's changed is the application infrastructure or how we go about installing and distributing and deploying to it so there used to be a the mystic middleware engineer, which who knows where that person is now. Right, they're missing. <laughs> yeah, they're missing. <laughs> they're missing.
1: They're looking for jobs right now. Yeah,
0: or they're just DevOps engineers now. So. Yeah, <laughs> like uh, me,
1: <laughs> like you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for
0: sure. Um, and, and so it's let, let's talk about what uh, containerization actually did. So you and I used to build wars and jars and hand it off right. to somebody, or we want to be the person again that we handed it to ourselves and went and used ND <laughs> to deploy stuff. Uh, but let's talk about, okay, like what were some benefits that just dumping something in a container you think uh, did?
1: I think there are a lot of benefits about like moving an application to work on containers or like microservices, whatever you want to, to name that. Actually, I remember like the very first project that I work at, um, I mean, I work, I used to work for a very big Colombian company, like an insurance company. So the core application of this company, which kind of huge, it was like entirely written Java and PL, SQL. So they, they wanted to break it, to break up this application into like small pieces, namely say microservices. Um, so I remember that I started working on that project like as like as some sort of DevOps engineer. Uh, so at that time we wanted to actually use Docker, but Docker was like in its earliest stages. So because back in that time, you know, Mesos and Marathon were like in early stages as well. It was not like a mature product to use. Uh, but like the main benefits that we saw back in the time for using containers were was, well, mainly resource allocation, you know, and resource isolation for a specific application. Because back in that time, if you had like, you know, 10 Java applications running in the same VM, they were gonna compete each other for resources. I mean, mostly for CPU, because well, at some point you could isolate the memory, you know, setting up the XMX and and XMS for, for the applications, but they were not, they were gonna compete each other for CPU and networking and IO. So that was like the very the very first benefit that we gained from that, like isolating resources uh, from each other. The other benefit that we gained was to be able to scale up different pieces of the of that microservice. You know, like scaling up, for example, if you have issues with your messaging part of your application, you can you could scale up you know those microservices in, instead of scaling up the entire monolith. Because as I just mentioned that core application of that insurance company was like a huge monolith. You know, actually I remember that the WAR weighted like one gigabyte or even more than one gigabyte. So it was like a huge monolith. So actually starting up that application used to take like 15, 17 minutes, you know, because it was like an entire monolith starting up and connecting to the hundreds of components, backends, databases. Right after that, we break up the monolith in probably 12 or 15 different microservices. So obviously the startup times for those microservices, instead of being minutes, now they were seconds. And because of that, obviously they could have focused teams working uh, separately on each microservice. So instead of uh, of having a hundred developers working on, on the monolith, you know, you could have maybe Small teams or maybe six or seven developers small, uh, focus on a, on a single microservice. obviously that that um, that has challenges as well. Obviously, there's gonna be drawbacks of implementing or breaking a monolith, but yeah, we can discuss that later. So yeah, for me, that was like the biggest benefit of starting working with microservices or or containers. Awesome.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's great. Like, really, I I like your explanation that, you know, a lot of times, you know, you're actually CPU constrained and you don't realize it. Uh Because, yeah, Java respects (laughs) itself pretty good about the memory, but the CPU is anybody's guess. Um, Right. Now we're getting closer. Now we're starting, we're continuing on the journey towards Kubernetes, right? So we're 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 getting there. So, getting there, yeah. (laughs) Getting slowly there. So, one foot in, one foot out of the JE stuff now. So, uh, wh- when we would deploy, like to say, to ND or like some sort of cluster deployment, um, it-, it was pretty standard, right? Like we, we know mm-hmm. how to load balance, right? So our application yep. might have, you know, eight nodes, but, you know, we have some sort of software load balancer in front of it that, you know, we'll figure out, you know, we'll, co- we'll connect to either IBM's, uh, Oracle's or Red Hat's, right? Like their, their particular intron- yeah. their mm-hmm. routing mechanisms. But now, yep. when we're having containers, right? So we we might not get to use an application server anymore, and so some of the mm-hmm. stuff that, like you know, if you just have several containers, you're you're wiring it yourself again, right? You're using right. I don't know Apache mod jk or something, uh, by, by yourself that. And now this is we're going to start introducing uh, the, the other concept is container sprawl, right? So if you thought right. virtual machine sprawl was bad; it is easy to spin up a container, and they also die. Right. But but let's talk about why even have a container orchestrator, right? So let, let's go to that. Uh, I'm just kind of leading Santiago here to his first experience with uh, <laughs> Apache Mesos and Apache Marathon. But the kind of the precursor <laughs> uh, to Kubernetes was these two projects uh, that were job schedulers, actually, and then it became a Mesosphere product. But why don't you talk about the road to Mesos uh, or why even it was needed?
1: Right, so yeah, obviously, as I just mentioned, <clears throat> we were kind of managing between 13 and 15 microservices after we break up this huge monolith. Obviously that that led uh, led us to having some challenges. Like for example, if you spin up a Docker container, right, uh, that Docker container uh, will have or will be exposing a particular port, right? Because inside the container, you will have for some saying the AD port, right? The HTTP AD port. But if you want to expose that port to your host, you know that's going to be probably a random port because if you want to uh, spin up ten containers for the same microservice, obviously you cannot expose the same port. so you will have random ports exposed to the host. So that's the first challenge, you know how the load balancer or whatever other the resource that you have for you know load balancing the, the incoming request, how they are going to be aware of the running containers and what ports are exposed on those on those containers, right? Because obviously the idea of using containers is to have no changing loads. So obviously you will scale up and scale down your ports, or sorry, your containers. Um, and because you have different machines or different servers, so you don't know where those new containers are gonna be, you know, spin up, or you probably know, but you don't want to control that. So actually back in those days, even before doing that, I remember that I wrote a shell script actually, to manage that, but it was super difficult to maintain that shell script because that in that shell script I had hard coded like the name of the containers like I had to statically define the exposed ports for every every single uh, container, like the minimum and maximum number of containers for that specific microservice, so it was like super super manual and Actually, the shell script worked it somehow. You know what? The shell script even had an interaction with our load balancer, which uh, I think if I, don't, if I remember right, it was like a Cisco load balancer. So the Cisco load balancer was able to attach and detach the containers. But it was all the shell script magic. So it was, uh, it was not an easy thing to maintain. So that was the time when Mesos and Marathon appeared on the earliest stages. So obviously Mesos and Martin, uh, they were a solution that tried to solve that issue, you know, how to orchestrate containers, how to schedule containers, you know, how to properly allocate resources uh, for those containers, how to know the amount of CPU and memory available in your entire cluster in in, in a single node. You know, so it was it was like a a good solution you know, for, for those problems that we were facing. But obviously there were, they were, there were other problems that um, weren't solved by Mesos & Marathon, like security, like logging, like monitoring, um, like what else, service discovery. So like Mesos & Marathon, they covered the basic problem of, of scheduling, right? But, you know, working with, with microservices and containers, it is, not the single, it is not the unique problem that you have. You have more problems than just scheduling. So that's, I think, like the previous uh, or the uh, precursor of Kubernetes, for some saying. So yeah, actually our experience with Mesos & Norton, was kind of really short. It didn't lasted for, for a while. Actually, I, I left that company r- right after I implemented this microservice architecture with Docker, Mesos & Norton. Um, but yeah, that was pretty much my experience with with Mark. And to be honest, I I kind of liked it. Uh, because it was an open source tool. It was pretty, pretty good maintained, pretty good design. But yeah, obviously it was it was missing a lot of things. Awesome.
0: Yeah. And that that's pretty true. I really like that that journey that, you know, the, the it's it's a lot of people don't know that struggle, right? I don't know, everyone sees Kubernetes mm-hmm. now, but you know, when you went to containerization, right. every one of those things you said is correct. Like you need an orchestrator because scheduling, uh, placement, right. uh, even just you know containers are made to die. Unlike right. uh, unlike a like a web <laughs> node, like they die, yeah. but you know there's they'll come back with several people. But uh, it, yeah. it's uh, <laughs> containers will die all the time, uh, right? Instead yeah. of placing them, they are meant too, yeah, absolutely. So let, let's let's fast forward now. So I think the audience, you know, they might be familiar with good old k kubernetes uh but let's talk about your, your your blog piece so what really impressed me about santiago was uh, he was actually talking about quote quoting the blog it's the hidden part of the iceberg uh yeah. a lot of things <laughs> that you don't think about with kubernetes so that uh, kubernetes is kind of ubiquitous now like i think most people you know at least heard of it but well, I- i'll leverage your expertise now so Tell, tell me what what are some things that that are just the tip of the iceberg, right? Like some concerns that you know that you had to work through that were more more or less challenging uh, that you mentioned in the blog post.
1: Yeah, so actually, the idea of writing that blog post well, actually, the idea was kind of um, I don't know how to say that. It was like a revelation to me, kind of a, not a revelation. <laughs> but I mean, I've been working at Gamgan, as I just said initially for two years. And during those three years, I've been working on the implementation of Kubernetes. So before working on, on Gamgan, I worked for other companies trying to implement trying to implement Kubernetes as well. But here at Gamgan, it was like my first serious production grade implementation of, of Kubernetes. So I mean, Kubernetes is amazing. I'm not gonna say that. I'm I'm gonna start with that. But most people uh kind of overlook a lot of aspects about Kubernetes. I mean, like, so the tip of the iceberg is like those amazing things about Kubernetes, right? Like service discovery, like container orchestration, like uh what else? Probably resource management, right? That's the tip of the iceberg because those are the things. That are going to sell Kubernetes to most of the developers, right? So it's going to be the idea of write it once and run it anywhere, right? That's the idea that most developers are going to buy for for Kubernetes. But it's, I say it's an iceberg because, you know, below the surface, there's a lot of challenges, a lot of problems uh, that you have to suffer for real. When you start implementing Kubernetes for real for a company, for an enterprise like like Gangang. I mean, GamGam is not a huge company. it's like a mid, mid-level company, but well, right now we have probably thirty Kubernetes clusters running up production and probably a, a bunch of applications. So yeah, so that was the, the idea for, for writing the blog post, you know, describing precisely as, I mean, with as much detail as possible, all those challenges, all those problems that we have faced implementing Kubernetes and how we solve it, I mean, how we solve those problems. I mean, I am not saying that is the only way for solving those problems, but that was our approach, you know, for solving all those gaps, all those problems or limitations that Kubernetes has. As, As I mentioned, Kubernetes doesn't have, I mean, doesn't include some batteries as I say in the article as well you have to provide some batteries you know to kubernetes like logging like monitoring like security like volume management so yeah that's all about the the article actually um I am preparing the second part for the article because uh, the article was long enough um so I'm gonna have like a part two mentioning some other aspects of that hidden part of the iceberg
0: awesome yeah yeah i really like i'm excited for the the part 2 i think one thing people who let's say use like minikube on their desktop you know what, what they don't anticipate is how pluggable kubernetes is so right. uh, like you go through the article that you're changing certain providers or you're changing certain opinions in kubernetes mm-hmm. and, and that's really hard right if you take, like the the difference i think between your approach you're a software engineer Right. So right. you started as a software engineer and so, so did I. Some of the, I think, tension in organizations come up with if someone started as a system engineer. So they're usually, right. if you remember those like run books, like IBM Redbook, like this is exactly mm-hmm. how you do something. Right. Yeah. <laughs> they're used to that. And But as a software engineers like you and I, we're used to trying things over and over right. until, we, until we get it right. And, and so Kubernetes is this aw- awkward bridge between... You know, it's, it's a piece of infrastructure that as software engineers is first saying, you know, we, we can change things. Don't worry. If we don't right. like it, we'll, we'll, we'll replug it. We'll use Istio right. now instead of, you know, Palico or something. Just I'm making something up there. But yep. uh, as a system engineer, they don't like that. <laughs> They're like, yeah. we need to know the best practice. And you stated it very eloquently that a lot of Kubernetes is an emerging practice, right? So best practice is right. not quite yeah. there. And that that is a, that the best of, practice. Yeah. It's just the, the tip tip of the iceberg. Uh, and so I uh, kind of like wrapping up with two questions here uh, for the podcast. Where where do you see the ecosystem going? Just like, you know, you're very close to it. Like where, where would you say there's the most room for improvement uh, in the entire Kubernetes ecosystem if you had a magic wand?
1: <clears throat> yeah, I think, yeah. So, just, uh, so as you just said, the Kubernetes ecosystem is huge uh, well, the thing with the Kubernetes architecture is that well, the architecture is pluggable, so you can plug a lot of components like CNI plugins for networking, like uh, DNS plugins, like um, um, ingress controllers. So Kubernetes is so pluggable that the ecosystem is huge. Actually, I mentioned that in the article. If you go to to the CNCF landscape for Kubernetes, it's overwhelming. You know, at some point. So if you try to look up for, you know, uh, an interest controller, you could probably find uh, 20 or 30 different interest controllers. So you will be like, man, what's the right one? I mean, what, what should I use? Use them yeah. all. If you, yeah, use them all. <laughs> use them all. <laughs> if you try to look up for volume management providers, there's going to be probably, I don't know, 10 or 20 different volume management providers. So I, I think probably in the, in the short term, you know, that landscape is going to be probably... It's gonna be like stabilized at some point. It's gonna be more stable. I think some products or some providers of Kubernetes are gonna be more mature, are gonna be more used, and probably some others, you know, because right now we are living that hype, I'd say. So probably a lot of people is trying to, you know, a lot of company, a lot of companies and vendors are trying to sell products for Kubernetes. So, not, so that hype is, is making that landscape bigger and bigger. But I think that that's going to be probably settled down and probably and probably we will have more stable products and providers for Kubernetes, meaning that you will have options, obviously, but they will be fewer options and more mature options that you can uh, implement into, into Kubernetes. Because I remember working with a colleague at Gamgam, and he wants to implement like... A, Beta version of a networking provider, and it was for a productive Kubernetes cluster. I was like no man i mean it's it's a nice product, but it's not mature enough. you know it's in it's, it it was in an alpha or beta uh, version, and actually to that project right now is i think' is, is being the commission because of that because it was just you know starting up so I think that's going to happen with the uh, with the Kubernetes ecosystem. a lot of companies you know are are trying to make money out of Kubernetes right now. Everyone is trying to sell anything for Kubernetes, but I think that's going to sell: we should make point. a
0: Kubernetes air freshener for your car. Right. <laughs> yeah. Let's do it, Santiago. Let's make yeah, let's do
1: it <laughs> <laughs> that's gonna sell millions actually.
0: <laughs> I love it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, a- awesome answer. I mean that that's as eloquent as any any answer. It's it's an answer from experience. Um, mm-hmm. It's like any other technology, right? Like any fast moving technology, maturity will come. And that, this is coming from a seasoned architect yeah. like Santiago. You've seen multiple waves of it from you know the, the Java world, the container world, the Kubernetes world. So I, I, really, I really enjoyed our conversation. I, I always end the podcast on one question. Uh, this is our final question uh, for, for the podcast. And it's kind of a intrinsic question. So uh, a philosophical question. So let's say that um, you were walking down the street uh, where you live Mm -hmm. today and you ran into a younger Santiago who just graduated university or school. What would be something you would tell your younger self? It could be anything like don't go to jail, don't eat that, you know, like it could be any piece of advice you would tell your younger self.
1: I would say Santiago don't institute computer science, please study philosophy or something different. (laughs) 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 I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just kidding. Uh, probably I would say uh, to my younger self, um, yeah, be more, be more skeptical, be more patient, uh, and be more. I don't know. Enjoy your career, uh, man. You are on the wrong. You are on the right path. Continue like that.
0: <laughs> there you go, man. I, love, I, I love really, lo-
1: I really love my profession. To be honest, I really love my profession, my career. I, I've been so fortunate. Uh, actually, I, I'm going to reveal this into this podcast, but my dream as a, when I was a student computer engineer at the, at the college was to work for a very big American company, and that dream came true. So I am working for a very big, well, no, it's not very big, but it's a big American company. Uh, I am working as a lead DevOps engineer. I never imagined uh, managing a team. I am kind of doing it right now. So, yeah, thanks so much, Robbie, for, for having me in your, por- in your podcast. Actually, I have to confess that this is my first podcast in English because English is not my first language. Um, so, yeah, thanks so much for that. I thought I was going to be more nervous, but I wasn't. <laughs> this, this
0: was great. Um, you speak better English than I do, and I only know English, so it's... It, it, it's, it's... <laughs> <laughs> well thank you so much santiago for your time on the podcast i've, I've really enjoyed it the listeners are going to find this great and uh, yeah again um santiago thank you so much for being on uh ship talk
1: thanks so much for again and uh guys uh whoever is listening to this podcast please try hardness hardness is amazing by the way
0: <laughs> thanks